Toby asked me to fill in while he's away part of this month and suggested that I speak about the church and uh, the unity of the church and uh, review that a bit. Uh, It's good to review those things regularly, I think. We haven't done that in quite a while around here, so I'm happy to do that. It's going to take about three weeks to work on that. We'll start today, and then the next two weeks of July we'll finish up. Uh, In general, what I want you to understand is we're going to start with the big picture and move it down to personal. The church from the big picture, which is very divided, down to personal of what we can do about Christ's prayer for unity. So we'll be moving from big picture to personal things in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and I want to make sure that you get we're talking about the big picture. So I decided the way to do that is to ask you to suppose that you came to earth from Neptune or Pluto or Mars or somewhere and appeared at the earthly information booth uh, wanting to be an immigrant to this planet. And you'd probably have a lot of questions. Well, as humans, what do we do about this and that? As earthlings, how do we do this and that other thing? I imagine one of your questions eventually and I don't know your background on these other planets, but one of your questions ought to be about religion. Because religion is a big part of being a human. All over the earth we have all kinds of options and different kinds and different thinkings about religion, but religion's everywhere. So you'd probably eventually ask, well, tell me about that. And... At the information booth would probably tell you, well, we really pride ourselves on diversity here. And we got all options. You can be anything you want, everything you want. It's somewhere uh, on earth if you want to worship this or that or the other. And if they explained enough, or if you had some history studies maybe before you came, you might ask, what about this thing called Christianity? I've heard about this Christianity thing, and I understand it's a really big deal. Can you explain that to me a little bit? Well, they might refer you over to the expert on Christianity. And let's play that I'm that expert this morning. I would explain to somebody who didn't know anything about it. uh, The basics, of course, about God and Jesus and death on the cross and all that. And I would explain that this book is Christian's guideline. This is the way they answer questions about things. And Christians are organized into, they're not organized, they're a part of a thing that they call the church. The church was promised, and I'd turn them to Matthew 16, verse 18, where Jesus promised to build a church. Jesus told Peter, he said, who do people say I am? And Peter confessed, well, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, on that rock, on that confession, on that solid fact that I am the Son of God, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
noticed. I left a knot out of there. It shall not prevail against it. The other type of see this Christianity stuff's hard. Uh, anyhow, correct that in your notes, please. Uh, so Jesus promised to build a church, and then I'd say, now if you turn over to Acts chapter two, you'll start to learn about when the church was realized, when it began. And Acts two forty-seven, text two, tells about Peter preaching to the Jews and others there about the Jesus and what had happened to him and who he was and all that. And it says at the end of the day, after 3,000 people were baptized, it says after that the Lord continued to add people day by day to their number. That's the church, the called out. And he added those who were being saved. So I'd point out to you that not only did Jesus promise a church, but he began it on the day of Pentecost after he went back to heaven. And the saved people were the ones who made up the church. And God knew who they were, and he added them to this thing called the church. I'd ask you to turn over to Ephesians 4, 4, where it says there is one church. The church is the body, and we'll see that later, but there is one body. And Paul goes on and says there's one body and there's one spirit and there's one hope and there's one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all. There's just one. Jesus promised I'll build my church. He added saved people to it and there's only one of them. I tell you now if you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, you'll see how this church is organized. Jesus is the head. He's the only head. Paul wrote in verses 22 and 23 of Ephesians 1, He, God, put all things under His feet, Jesus' feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So Jesus is the head of this organism called the body, the church, that Jesus promised to build, and God puts the saved people in. Now, after I'd showed you all that, I'd say, now, one thing you need to know about this church is right before Jesus left the earth, he prayed about it. He prayed a lot of things in the prayers in John 17 and right around there. But let's turn to John 17. And part of his prayer, after he'd finished praying for the apostles, he said to his father, now, I don't just pray for the apostles. I pray also for some other folks. Those other folks are those who will believe in me through their word. When the apostles go out and tell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, people who believe that and become part of the saved, become part of the church, become part of that one body, I pray that they may all be one. I pray that they may all be one so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Now, if I had time, I would explain other things to the new immigrant to earth. And after I'd explained Christianity and the church and all that, I would probably tell them that the church is the blood-bought body of Christ. It is the kingdom of God. It was built by Jesus. It contains all the saved people. 
It's the pillar and ground of the truth. It's at, at the end of time, the church is what Jesus is coming back for, and he's going to deliver it to the Father in heaven. I'd explain all that, and I'd tell this new immigrant, now that's what you need to find. As you go out looking for religion, that's what you need to find on earth. That immigrant would probably say, well, thank you very much. I appreciate the information. I can hardly wait to find that. And as they turned toward the door, I'm sure they would expect that when they stepped out into this world, that they're going to find a great big loving group of saved people who are changing the world because they're so united and following this one who died for them. That's what they would expect to step out and find. So before I let them go out that door, I would have to warn you. That's not what you're going to find. As you go out, you're going to find a divided church. Now what I explained... All those things I told you, all those things I showed you in this Bible, all that's true. But it's from God's perspective. That's what God sees. That's what He understands. That's what He knows. He can see it. He knows who's saved. He knows people's hearts. He knows exactly those who have believed on him and have done what he said, and he understands all their background and all their history and why they make decisions. He understands all of that. He understands who the church, the group of saved people, he understands who that is. He knows exactly. The, the, the one body, the church that he promised to build, is visible to him. We have trouble. It's visible to him, but we've got trouble. Because we have divided, and I say we, mankind over 2,000 years, we have divided his visible body. That's all we can see is people that call themselves Christ followers. We've divided that over everything you can imagine, anything you can imagine, and things that you could not possibly imagine. That's what we've done. That's the way the world is. So when you go out that door, I would tell this immigrant, it's not as easy as it sounds. If you look for the Christian church, you're going to find signs like this. And not just these few signs, Catholic, Protestant, Baptist, Orthodox, Christian, Methodist, on and on and on. Not just that, if all the signs were there, there's over 2,600 folks, over 2,600 distinct groups that claim to be Christ followers. That's what you'll find. Now, after that warning, I'm sure our poor immigrant would turn around and say, how did that happen? <laughs> from what you showed me in your book, from what your Savior prayed for, how did that happen? 
That's a big question. And it's a long, long answer, but I'll try to shrink it down and give you a real, real quick answer. Just a little bit of history here may help you understand how we got in this mess. From almost the very start of Christianity, people began to teach things that Jesus hadn't taught. And it went on for about a thousand years. I called this period the period of apostasy. That means a falling away. And it took a thousand years to get quite a ways away from the simple Christianity that Jesus taught. People start, even in the New Testament, you see this. Before it was finished being written, the writers were warning against heresies, saying people are teaching this and it's not true. You've got to refute that. It, tell them that's wrong. The Bible mentions specific heresies. It warns in general that people are going to teach wrong things. And they're going to draw people away and they're going to make other groups instead of the one body of Christ. And it warns us over and over to try to stay one. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Paul said, right before he said, there is one body. So we find that even in the New Testament. But we look at history, and we see that very quickly men began changing things. One of the first things they began to mess with was the organization of the church. All Jesus and the apostles did was start local churches. So you believe in Christ, worship together. Didn't have any bigger hierarchy. Nobody was in charge but men thought, man, this isn't organized too well. We better organize it. So they began to put men over numbers of churches. And then they began to put men over numbers of groups of churches. And they named them other things. And they called them different things. And they named their leaders different things. And pretty soon they built this huge hierarchy that looked just like the Roman government. They had men over the area around Antioch, and they had one man over the area around Jerusalem, and another man around the area over Constantinople, and another one around the area of Rome, and another one over, over Alexandria, Egypt. Those were the five biggies. And those five head guys began to think, well, maybe one of us ought to be the head. Took 600 years. They fought over it for 600 years, trying to decide if one of them ought to be the head. One guy tried it once. He said, I'm going to be the head of the whole church. The rest of them said, You're the Antichrist. Ephesians 4 4 says, Jesus is the head. We can't have an earthly head, but by 606. One guy, the one in Rome, had enough power that he said, I'm the head of church, the church. And, and that earthly mankind kind of organization began to write down creeds. They began to say, here's what we believe, and here's what everybody's got to believe. And they began to come up with things that weren't in the Bible. Now, a lot of it was good intention. They were trying to settle heresies and stamp out false teaching and all that. But to do that, 
they made up some things that weren't in the Bible. They dreamed up things like purgatory. Five ninety-three, when they dreamed that up, they dreamed things up like the clergy and laity. There's a special group that are priests, and then there's all the other Christians. After about a thousand years, they came up and said, "Priests, they shouldn't get married. They ought to just serve the church and not have an earthly wife and things like that that aren't in the Bible. In fact, they're warned against in the Bible." Now, that apostasy, that change of the church, took a thousand years. It was very, very gradual. In 1054, there was the great, a great schism, a great divide. The church, and all this I'm describing was still all the folks that believed in Christ on earth. But they had a great big division in 1054 between the East and the West, the Roman and the Orthodox, if you will. And it was over a lot of things. It was over a lot of things that had changed over a thousand years. And finally, one group, the Eastern Church, if you will, said, we just, we can't follow that one leader in Rome anymore. We're going to split off and we're going to try to be orthodox. We're going to try to follow the Bible more closely. And that division still exists today. They still do things like sing a cappella like we do here. Because they said, no, instrumental music's wrong. It's not in the Bible. Early Christians didn't do that, so we're not going to do that. The Western church said, no, it's okay to do that. So that was part of the divide. Baptism was another big part of the divide. Now, to show you how gradual it is, it took 1,300 years before baptism changed from immersion, which was in the Bible, to sprinkling. It took 1,300 years. The Orthodox Church still immerses people. They say that's baptism. That's really baptism. Okay? But the Western Church, it started pretty innocently. 251 A.D., from best we can tell, there was a fellow that was too sick to put underwater. They said, well, he wants to be baptized. We've we got to do this somehow. Somebody said, well, this is a clinical case. This is a medical case. So we're going to say it's all right to sprinkle some water on him. But it'll be very rare. We won't do it very often, but we can do that occasionally. Well, a thousand years later, 1311, it had become so commonplace and so accepted that the church in one of their councils said, sprinkling's okay. It counts too. The Orthodox Church said, no, it doesn't. So I'm just pointing out a few of these little differences that led to this huge division. This was the big split. Well, after that happened in 1054, there was a period of time for about 200 years. And I put down 1300 to 1500, rough dates, where there was a lot of struggle going on. Because during that time, after the big split, of course, the Western Church continued to do what big organizations do. 
they had all the power, and so they enforced the accuracy or con- can't think of the word. They enforced uniformity. Everybody's got to believe this. And by then they'd changed so many things from what the Bible said that people who read the Bible said, hold it, there's a problem there. So in those 200 years, there were lots of guys who raised that question and began to question the leadership and say, no, we've got to change that. We can't do it the way the leaders are telling us to do it anymore. Now, during this 200 years period, the church got, the leaders got pretty strict about things. A guy named Jerome in Prague began to question the leaders. They burned him at the stake. A fellow named John Huss began to question the leaders. They excommunicated him from the church and then killed him. A fellow named John Wycliffe, you heard of Wycliffe Bible translators today, he began to question the leadership and say, we've got to do things differently. In fact, he went so far as to say the Pope is the Antichrist. He's not in the Bible. We can't have a Pope. Uh, unfortunately, he died before they could kill him. So they dug him up and burned his remains to show people you don't question the leadership. Now, some of you are thinking, this can't be church history. This can't be true from what Jesus started and what Jesus prayed. It's true. Read the history book. The church got more and more materialistic. It got more and more earthly. It got less and less true to the Bible, if you will. Until the next big step, I call it, Martin Luther came along. He wasn't the only one. He got to be the most famous one. But from about 1500 to about 1800, there was a period that I called on your chart the period of Reformation. Now, what that was all about was Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic priest. If you didn't know that, he wasn't a Lutheran. He was a Roman Catholic priest. And he looked at what had happened to the church and how it had got so far away from the Bible. And he said, we've got to change some things. We've got to get back to what we were once. Now, the thing that really tipped him over the edge, uh, he had the 95 things that he listed as wrong, Uh, But the one thing that really caused him to act and to risk his life for this was Pope Julius decided he was going to build St. Peter's Basilica. You've been to Rome, you've seen it's one of the most magnificent building on earth probably. Uh, It was very expensive back then, and Pope Julius needed lots of money. So he came up with a fundraising idea. He sent people out, and he said, you go out to all the churches around the world, and you tell them that if they give money to help us build St. Peter's, that we will expedite the the souls of their friends to get out of purgatory and go on to heaven. He called them indulgences. You give us enough money, and we'll give you an indulgence. We'll take care of this for you. And Martin Luther said, That's really fouled up. That's really off track. 
And he sat down and listed 94 other things that he said were wrong in the church. He said, we need to reform it. And he had a lot of help. Other guys came along that said, we need to reform the church. Now, what came from that was not what Luther intended. In fact, he said, I don't want anybody to ever call themselves after me. I don't want anybody to ever start a separate church. But pretty soon, there were people who called themselves Luther followers. Today, there are Lutherans. They follow his teaching. Calvin came along, and people began to follow his teaching and divided into a group called Presbyterians. Henry VIII in England was a Catholic, but the Pope told him he couldn't marry or divorce who he wanted to. He said, all right, I'll start my own church. I'm a king. So he did. He started the Church of England. And in the Church of England, we'll pretty much do what the Roman Catholic Church tells us or what they're practicing, but we'll allow my divorce and remarriage. So he started a different church. And pretty soon, off of those and others, there were groups that began to argue about how you baptize and when you baptize and called themselves Baptists. People followed a couple of brothers named Wesley who had a method for becoming holy, and they began to call themselves Methodists. People organized a little different when they came to America. And from the Church of England, they called themselves Episcopals. And so you see these threads or these divisions went on and on and on. They were all trying to reform the church and get it right again. A very interesting thing happened in the early 1800s. A lot of those folks who were forming denominations and trying to reform the Catholic Church and all, they moved to America. And in general, I think the kind of folks who packed up and came to a new land were kind of pioneers. <laughs> they had a little pioneer spirit about them. And they got over here and they tried to have church like they were used to. And the headquarters were clear back in Europe. It made things difficult. And they were much more independent-minded, and they were much more together, and the Presbyterians knew Baptists and knew Methodists and knew all that in these communities. And I don't know who thought of it first, but a bunch of men began to teach it at the same time. They said, you know, this doesn't work. This denomination stuff. All of these groups who are, we all think we're Christians, but we can't get along. We got all these headquarters that tell us we do this and do that, and that doesn't work. So they said, some of them said, let's try this. Now, this is one of those profound ideas in history. They said, let's try this. Let's just take this book. And let's follow it. Let's forget our headquarters. Let's take all of All of us have got a different creed. We've got things written down. Let's just tear them up and forget them. Let's just do what this book says and see how that works. They said, let's restore the church. 
instead of reforming it. It's so messed up, we can't reform it. So let's just give up on reforming and let's try restoring. Let's go back to the Bible. Let's speak where it speaks. We'll be silent where it's silent. We'll say Bible things in Bible ways. We'll call Bible things by Bible names. And we'll see how that works. That restoration movement spread across America. People were excited about that. People understood the body of Christ being divided is not good. They thought, maybe this will work. We are descendants of that movement. The fellows that started it were named Campbell and Stone and Smith and Jones and from a number of different denominations. And the churches of Christ have come down out of that, as have the Christian churches and the disciples of Christ. And when I say those three names, it's obvious that the idea didn't work perfectly. It sounds real good. It's probably the only way to really do it. But in practice, men still kept dividing over things. Now, we studied this in some detail a number of years ago. That I know you can't read that, but I put some copies of that chart I made out on the information counter if you want one. There's some dates and there's some the denominations and where they came from and all that. Just some of the things we've talked about today. Uh, you can pick one up if you want on your way out. And you, when you look at a chart like this and you see all these branches going out, let me tell you how simplistic it is. It's worse than that. I went to a website that tried to graphically picture Christianity over the 2,000 years. Here's kind of the main chart. And yeah, you can't read it or see it. If you can just see the colors and understand how many there are is all I want you to get. There's the big split between east and west. There's, there's groups coming off of the west and coming off of the east and all of that. Uh, it, it kind of pictures it. But that's just the first big picture, and it gets worse. Here's one, and you can barely see that. This is one little group started by a guy named Miller a little over 100 years ago. He started an Adventist group, and he dreamed up his own doctrine about worshiping on Saturday and following parts of the Old Testament and some other stuff and called himself an Adventist. This is the picture of what his little splinter group has splintered into. I just want you to see how man does this. The restorationist picture isn't much better than this one. We're trying. We think it's a good idea to just do what the Bible says, but in practice, we don't do real well. Now, I showed you all that, and at this point, I hope some of you are depressed. I guess first sermon I ever gave where I hope I depressed people. But it's depressing, isn't it, to see what man has done. If it bothers you, if it depresses you a little bit, I can only imagine what the head of the church, 
what the man who died for the church, what the man who prayed this prayer thinks when he looks down here. He prayed, I pray for those who believe in me, that they may all be one. And I want that so the world may believe that you've sent me. Now, when our immigrant walks out the door and runs into the divided mess that we have, it's really hard to see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's really hard. Now, he can see that invisible body. I know that. He knows the hearts of everybody, and it exists. We're, ta- we're still talking about what I started with. We're, we're talking about the church is the blood-bought body of Christ. It is the kingdom of God, the Bible says. I believe it was built by Jesus. I believe it contains all of the saved. The Bible says it's the pillar and ground of the truth. I believe it is. At the end of the time, the time, Jesus is coming back for the church. He's going to take those who are saved, he's going to take them and deliver them to God in heaven. I believe all that. But it's so hard for the world to see that because of how we've divided things. I wish I had time for some good news today, but that's going to have to wait till next week. Next week, we're going to talk about what should we do about this. And I realize after that, you may be sitting there thinking, oh, there's nothing I can do about that. If there's 2,600 of them, how can I unify it? Well, we can't unify that. But we can do something to answer John 17 prayer. We can do something to respond to what Jesus prayed for, and that's what we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks. What can we do as Christ followers? I admit, we're not going to get back to the unity that existed. Can you imagine that day, I almost kind of started one day, when Christians started getting persecuted and run out of Jerusalem? And they all went over the world teaching people about Jesus. Can you imagine how one they were? Uh, Back when his prayer was pretty fresh in their minds, they surely were so united. And not worried about some of the things we worried about. They just wanted to follow Jesus. I think maybe we can restore that in a small way. We'll attempt to do that in the next couple of weeks. I hope you've seen that man has made Christianity pretty confusing. Man has made it confusing. The Bible makes it pretty simple. Uh, The book makes it pretty easy to understand. Christ died for you. That's a fact. He said, all that believe in me and obey my word, I'll save them. Remember when I talked about the church starting? That was the question people had. Peter told them, Jesus died for you and he's Lord in Christ. They said, well, what do we do? He said, well, you repent and you be baptized and he'll forgive your sins and he'll add you to the church. It was on the first day of the church. Still in there in Acts chapter 2. Still true right here today. If you're not one of the saved, 
if you haven't done what Jesus asked, or if you have questions about it. If you've seen this simple story from the Bible and say, tell me more about that, we'd like to help you. We're going to sing a song in a moment, and they will stand up, and the elders will be down front. And if you've got questions for them, or if you want to put Christ on in baptism today, and be part of that blood-bought body of Christ, we'd be glad to help you. Let's stand and sing. If you need to come, come.